Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. This is Patrick Georgioff, and boy, do we have an awesome show for you today. We're joined by Dr. David Fagenbaum, whose story is simply remarkable. In fact, his entire life is remarkable. Dave has Castleman's disease and during medical school was on the brink of death multiple times, even had his last rites read to him multiple times. But Dave survived and he actually diagnosed himself when no one no one else could, no other doctors could. And he identified a successful treatment, uh, one that had been on the pharmacy shelf the whole time, sometimes just a few feet away from him. And Dave survived, but that's not the end of the story, nor is it really even the beginning. And that's why he's here with us today on Behind the Knife. So we're going to dive in and find out how Dave is dominating the day, or as he has come to refer to it, overtime. So Dave is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Translational Medicine and Human Genetics at Penn. And he is the associate director of patient impact at the University of Pennsylvania's Orphan Disease Center. He is also co-founder of the National Students of AMF Support Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting grieving college students. He's also co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. And he is founder of Every Care, whose mission is to identify new uses for existing drugs. Dave is also the best-selling author of Chasing My Cure, an absolutely, absolutely captivating read. I loved it, uh, and I cannot recommend it enough. He's published extensively. Uh, he is including the New England Journal of Medicine. He's been featured on CNN, on BBC, and NPR, New York Times, Science, etc. Dave and I also happen to be good friends from medical school. So, Dave, I'm thrilled to have you on board. Or I should be calling you the beast, actually, as we knew Dave back in medical school. So, welcome. George Off, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be with you. And I'm just so excited to, to chat with you tonight. So, as I mentioned, uh, you almost died during medical school multiple times. So, what happened? Yeah, I mean, you you remember, I was a healthy third year medical student. Um, we never had any medical issues, um, myself or you know anyone of our friends. And um, out of nowhere, um, I just started feeling more tired than I'd ever felt before. I noticed some lumps and bumps in my neck that seemed a little unusual. Um, started getting some abdominal pain, and uh, it just really progressed over the course of a couple of weeks. And, and all of a sudden, I found myself taking an OBGYN shelf exam. And uh, I'm I'm sure I failed it. I never got my actual grade back. But I went straight from that exam down the hall to the emergency department, and um, they ran some blood work. and And I'll never forget the ER doctor coming to my room and saying, "David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are all shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away." And I was like, "Holy crap! Like this is nuts." Um, so they did, uh, they did full body, uh, CT scan and found disseminated lymphadenopathy throughout my body. And uh, I mentioned I was admitted for workup of autoimmune condition versus virus versus, um, infectious disease. And unfortunately I got so sick so quickly over the next couple of days, I was transferred to the ICU, uh, in critical condition, gained over 70 pounds of fluid because of the liver and kidney failure. I was on dialysis three times a week. Um, was getting daily blood transfusions of RBCs and platelets just to keep me alive, all with no diagnosis. And so it was 
this frightening period of time where I even had a retinal hemorrhage that made me temporarily blind in my left eye and um, just drifted in and out of consciousness. I mean, I remember you and, and other friends of ours coming by to visit me in the ICU and um, faint memories because I was you know so sick, but um, it was 11 weeks before the diagnosis was finally made. And it was made about two days after my doctors told my family that I wasn't going to make it. And um, a priest came in my room and read me my last rites. And that was November of 2010. I was 25 years old. And, you know, uh, at 25 years old, we were looking to our future about the impact we could make, the work we could do. And I was also looking a lot into my past. My, my mom had passed away from cancer a few years before, and it had been my dream to, to treat patients in her memory. And all of a sudden, um, that dream wasn't going to become real. And so thankfully, the diagnosis was made, idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, this immune disorder where your immune system basically attacks your vital organs for an unknown cause and it's progressive. Um, you you need to treat it aggressively with chemotherapy or else you'll die. And so I got a boatload of chemotherapy, which fortunately saved my life. Um, but unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse. Why was it so hard to diagnose Castleman's? So in order to diagnose it, you have to do a lymph node biopsy. And patients like me get so sick so quickly that a lot of times ICU doctors don't want to take the patient out of the ICU to the OR to get a lymph node biopsy. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like, that's crazy. And I agree with you. Um, um, it is crazy. You, you just need to get tissue, you know, tissue is the issue. Right. And so um, I think it's just when you got people as sick as me and the differential is very wide, you know, it's right. sepsis versus um, EBV versus, you know, dis uh, uh, lymphoma, you know, uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, you've got this really broad differential. And so um you know, we really pushed, you know, get the lymph node biopsy because then then you can diagnose it. You know, our listeners on Behind the Knife are intimately involved in critical care. When you talk to doctors about your time in the ICU, what's one thing that you've taken away as as the patient? There's a few things that come to mind. So first off is I was getting so sick so quickly that my doctors lost sight of some of the, just the basic things you need to do for a critically ill patient. So I wasn't eating and they were not providing me with any nourishment at all. So I had no feeding tube, despite the fact I wasn't eating and taking in any, any food. And, and maybe that's okay for a few days or a week, but, but that was weeks. It was seven weeks. Um, so this is, so, you know, I, I, I gained 70 pounds of fluid, but it really was probably more like 120 pounds of fluid because I lost 50 pounds of, of muscle mass. The lean mass. And we did so call you the, the beast for a, a reason. There's some some amazing yeah. photos of Dave, uh, who was quarterback at Georgetown. Uh, so this is a real athlete. Uh, pictures of of you tearing down the field, doing those sprint exercises with one of those parachutes behind you. Know the the uh, for okay. resist. Oh, thank you too. Resistance training, looking like an absolutely ripped, just sudden. Hence the beast. So, anyways, you were far from it, and and in talks uh, that you've given. You have the side-by-side -side pictures, which are just yeah. stunning to see in terms of the amount of anasarca and ascites and, and muscle wasting that you encountered in the ICU. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, thankfully I had, you know, 50 pounds of extra lean mass that I could sort of like lose and I could sort of, my body could eat because um, yeah. I wasn't being fed. And I mean, that's, that's, I think, you know, one thing for sure is no matter how sick the patient is, no matter how focused you are on what's the diagnosis, don't lose track of the basics. Um, you know, make sure that the that the patient is fed. Um, that's one. Um, another one is that in the weeks leading up to my um, admission, I had noticed these blood moles were popping up all over my body, these little like cherry hemangiomas. 
And I was so out of it, Patrick, you may remember I was awake for like maybe an hour a day. Um, and when I was awake, I was very confused, but I was, I would bring up these cherry hemangiomas. I'd be like, you know, what about the blood moles? And my ICU doctors were so frustrated and they were like, David, your organs are all shutting down. Like you're dying. Like forget about the blood moles, you know, like, you know, let's worry about the important stuff. And I, I kept asking, my dad, you know, reminds me, and I wrote it in my book that apparently I would ask like the food servers, they would come in to like you know, put a, a tray on my, or, you know, a plate on my, on my tray. Of course I wasn't eating any of it, but I'd be like, you know, what about the blood moles? <laughs> my dad's like, forget about the blood moles. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's number two. And then I think number three is um, I think our system is so specialized where, you know, right. oncology comes in and room comes in and nephrology comes in and a disease like Castleman's really kind of sits in the middle of all these things. And so every group would come in and say, you know, it's not me. We think it's you, you know, where it's not hemonc. Right. We think it's auto, you know, rheumatology, blah, blah, blah. And so I think it's just important for us as physicians, you know, even if something's not your specialty um, that we did have some ex- example of some doctors who really said like, it's not my specialty, but like, I'm going to lean into figuring out what this is. So, you know, you know, don't always hark back just to what your specialty is. So take ownership of the patient, listen to the patient, be that quarterback, be their advocate. You got really sick. You got pounded with chemotherapy despite being so sick and miraculously pulled through. Yeah. What happened after that though? So, yeah. So then about a month later, um, I relapsed and uh, it was back. And so um, in that time, how devastating was that? It was, I mean, I I can't even put into words like, so it, it seems like, you know, throughout my journey, you know, in total, almost dying five times, every one of those times I got so sick and started to feel better. I truly believe like this was like, we got it. Like, like, you know, we're going to get where well, this thing's under control. We got it. And then of course, every time it would come back, it would just be just so devastating. Um, I mean, just like mentally so difficult to overcome. And, you know, you know, I've talked about this before, but like, you know, if someone had told me at the beginning, it ended up being about six months that I was hospitalized for at the beginning with a few weeks here and there when I was out of the hospital. Um, but pretty much six months of like pain and suffering because the fluid accumulation is is so painful. Um, you know, full body knife like pain, basically. Um, if someone had told me on day one, like David, you're gonna be feeling like this for the next six months and you're gonna like nearly die three times in that period. I definitely would not have had the strength to get through it. I I mean, I think that the only way I got through it and it's like, it's a cliche, but truly the only way I got through it was one day at a time. It was like, not even one day, it was like one hour at a time. It's like, I can deal with this, you know, suffering and and horrible experience for, you know, one hour at a time. And what did your sisters tell you about uh, breathing? Right. Yes, yeah, so you're exactly right. So there was a point where um, where I was just ready to just give up. I mean, I was in so much pain. I was getting sicker and sicker. It was like right before I had my last rites read to me. So my doctors were pretty sure I was going to die too. Um, and there's just sort of, it was sort of my lowest point. And I was just ready to give up. And I and I specifically remember, I'm just going to slow down my breathing and I'm just, just going to relax. And, you know, we've all seen patients sort of can let it, let they can just sort of let it happen. And I was, that was my time. I was going to let to sort of let it happen. Um, and, uh, I remember my sister Gina sitting next to me and I remember her saying like, just breathe, Dave, just keep breathing. And it was like the perfect time, Patrick. Cause like, I swear that was the moment where I was like, this is it. And I remember hearing her and I was like, you know what, I can do this for another hour. Right. And so, and so, yeah, it was like, all right, I'm going to do this for another hour. And, um, you know, shit, if I had, you know, given up back then and stopped fighting, I would have thought I was giving up on like a couple days of like misery, right? Like a couple of days of suffering and nausea and illness. 
But like, this is 12 years later. Like we're talking 12 years later and And I I would have had no idea what I was giving up on. And so that's just why I think no matter what any of us are going through in life, um, you just got to keep breathing because, because you don't know what's going to happen. And your family was so amazing. Uh, amazing the whole thing amazing never and left I see and i see the picture of your beautiful wife caitlin and the kids and stuff right. the, the, in the background there so new york times ran a story that says uh, i think the title is doctor cure thyself right so yeah. you're in this situation now where you were finally diagnosed yeah and but you were relapsing again and again and these these flares this just intense autoimmune flares that would make you know multi-organ system failure make your body shut down yeah and you were at a point where you weren't getting better. You had multiple, the flares kept happening. The only option at that time was full on chemo. And I remember you had taken it upon yourself to collect samples, serum samples from different, and you weren't, this is that malt from multiple different hospitals. You had this PowerPoint that every time I saw you would grow a little bit more in in terms of number of slides and you'd have your IL-6 levels and your CBCs and everything mapped out across that because at some point, you figured out that you had to do something for yourself, right? What what was that point? And then can you tell everyone what happened after that? Because you you, you started doing some basic science, you start and you yeah. figured out a way to treat yourself. So how how did that all play out? Yeah. So the turning point was when I relapsed the fourth time. Um, I had been on an experimental drug, an IL six blocker, and um, was undergoing clinical trial and and. I, we all thought this was going to be it. This was that the was drug. This that was going to be disease it. Under control. Mm-hmm. You remember, this was like mm-hmm. it was like it was like the miracle that we had all been hoping for, right? And so I'd been on it for a year and hadn't come back for a year, and then boom, right at 15 months, it came back, and I was back in the ICU, all my organs shutting down, and that was so emotionally difficult because it was like we had all the hope and the hype and the excitement of like this being the drug and then it didn't work. And then my doctor explained to me that there were no more drugs in development and there were no more promising leads about the disease. The only thing we knew about Castleman's was IL-6 and we'd blocked the hell about it out of it for a year and it still came back. So now we had no idea what else to target. And my doctor explained that to me and he's like, look, we're going to keep giving you multi-agent chemotherapy, but at some point it's either going to stop working or very soon you're going to reach your lifetime max, the max dose of these chemos, because there's a point where like every additional dose so significantly increases your risk of secondary malignancies. So, um, so my whole family and Caitlin, uh, my, my f- girlfriend at the time, um, they were all in the room with me. And, um, I remember looking at them after we all cried for like five minutes, no one said anything. And then about five minutes in, I said like, you know, guys, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to find a drug that could work for me and other patients. And of course, first thing first, I had to survive this episode and I got really sick and I spent a month in the ICU, but I got out. And when I got out, um, I just made it my my life's mission to try to figure out what was happening in me and then could I find a drug that could maybe fix it. And so, you know, there were two things that were really important. One is that I knew we couldn't do it the way that research is typically done, where like you start a foundation, you raise money and you invite researchers to apply for it. We would need to figure out what needs to be done and then go and recruit the best people in the world to actually do it. It's sort of like getting away from this, hoping that the stars align to really aligning the stars. And then secondly, we couldn't, we didn't have the time or the resources to develop a new drug from scratch. We would need to figure out what was wrong and then try to find a drug we could repurpose to save my life. And like, I knew it was possible because there are all these amazing stories like thalidomide and Viagra where drugs 
you know, were made for one thing, but they could be used for other things. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, there's nothing left for my disease, but like, maybe there's something for another disease that could work for me. And like, that's my only shot at, at life. So that became the test was like, or the challenge was figure out what's going wrong in me and see if there's an existing drug that can hit it. So I did, did a lot of work for a year. You're right. I started performing basic science. I didn't know anything about research. Yeah, so, so what did you actually like, do for, for all the, you know, everyone listening, what did you actually do? I mean, you were looking at your samples, you were pulling every article you could find in from the literature know, and what you just started at square one. To, started at square one. So I relied on the literature early on and then I started performing experiments. And so I would draw blood on myself and then wrote, run flow cytometry. So characterize my immune cells by flow from the same samples. I would take serum and I actually just would send it, send it off to a company called Somalogic to measure 1300 proteins. I'd get proteomic data back. Um, and then as you know, a really critical piece to this was an immunistic chemistry study, um, which, which finally unveiled sort of what the right treatment was, but it was basically, and then we did some stem studies too, where I take my immune cells out, stimulate them with various, um, cytokines to see what kind of response they would have. Um, where were we, so where were we doing this out of, the tr- out of the trunk of your car? Like where was this happening? <laughs> it's translational research lab. It's a pulmonologist at Penn. She gave me some space in her lab and she was like, just go for it. And, um, so we wrote up a protocol to do Castleman's research and not, you know, just started working on my own samples. Literally, in her in lab. Between, you know, literally after almost dying in between flares, you're just cranking away in the lab being like, I, I need to live. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That is, that is so insane. I mean, it is, it's, it's amazing. I mean, not insane. It's amazing. It is truly amazing (laughs) that you did that, uh, that you had the wherewithal, that you had the fortitude, that you had the vision to be able to do that. And it is just so extraordinarily impressive because, you know, and we got to see kind of the the, the work that came out of it was this just super accelerated understanding of multicentric asthma's disease and and it even culminated in a and that was your New England Journal of Medicine paper, right? In terms of well, that first it. one was a was a blood paper, and then yeah, and then later on with right. big big a bunch of big a bunch of big journals, big papers. How did this conclude then? So you started learning more and more. You mentioned a specific stain on a yeah. lymph node that if you if you know you put it up on the slide is 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 just impressive because it's just in your face in terms of the positivity of that particular stain. What what was the drug then that has kept you? Yeah relapse free since. Yeah. So the flow cytometry and the proteomics pointed to um, this particular communication line of the immune system called mTOR, which especially um, our colleagues in transplant will be very familiar with. mTOR is critical for T-cell proliferation. It's really important for immune cell activation. That's why mTOR inhibitors exist for transplant. And so I got this strong signal that they looked like mTOR was like turned into overdrive um, from, from the blood, but we needed to test it in the lymph node to see what the lymph node looked like. Like, and um, one of the things that I'm so thankful for is that during my last relapse, I turned to a surgeon at UNC, um, which is where I was, I was hospitalized at the time and, um, and asked them to cut a lymph node out of my neck. And um, they're like, you know, why, why do you want this lymph node biopsied? I was like, well, I need to, if I survive this, I need to be able to do research on my lymph node. Um, and, and I didn't know what sort of study might come up, but anyway, I said, and there's some clinical rationale, like maybe this turned into lymphoma, like just please cut a lymph node out of my neck. And, um, so this, the surgeon cut the lymph node out of my neck and, um, spent a month in the ICU or actually that time, I think it was longer. It was like six weeks in the ICU chemo saved my life again. But once I got out, I went right back to crank in, in the lab and, um, and I had that lymph node. Right. And so, um, so then when we thought that mTOR was important, I was able to go to the lymph node and do this really cheap and simple immunistic chemistry stain, um, basically to ask whether mTOR 
core was activated or not. I think the whole experiment cost like $36. And uh, did you do it yourself? I, I sent it off to a core lab actually. Okay. So they just, they, they do this better than I could, I could have done it. Um, and it was, my life depended on it. So I was like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to screw this one up. Um, Take it out of your hands. Yeah. So I, I sent it to a core at Penn, but, but anyway, we've got that lymph node. We sent it to the core and the result came back and it was just the most beautiful thing in the world. All the, all the other lymph nodes came back blue because they had very little to no mTOR activation. And my lymph node came back like brown, like coffee because there was so much mTOR activation. And so basically that told us like, okay, we don't know if blocking mTOR is going to work, but we know that this can, this pathway is just turned into overdrive. So maybe blocking it will work. And of course the data from transplant was pretty compelling because when I get really sick, it's basically, you know, basically the equivalent of acute organ rejection of all of you. Imagine if, if your immune system attacked all of your organs like they were um, foreign simultaneously. So it sort of made conceptual sense. The drug serolimus or rapamycin that's approved for kidney transplantation, it had never been used before for Castleman's, but I shared the data with a couple of my doctors and um, and we had no other options. And so we're like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And, uh, you know, when I was with you last, Patrick, I just celebrated nine years that I've been in remission. So first three and a half years, I nearly died five times. And then with this like sort of Hail Mary, um, we we got serolimus and now it's been over nine years i've been in remission just amazing and and from that you started the cdcn then that's exactly right and i think a lot of uh, i really want people to hear about kind of how you went about it and then your your current take on how to effectively perform research in this space you went back you finished medical school and you went to wharton for an mba that's right which you know is interesting that's you didn't the residency you went to Wharton and, and why did you do that? And then how did you use that to design CDCN and to move push research forward in, in terms of Castleman specifically? Sure. So um I ended up between my fourth and fifth episodes is when I graduated from med school. And so I was thinking to myself, right, as graduation was coming. I was like, do I go to residency um, like all my friends were doing and, you know, like, you know, typically do after med school um, or do I do a business degree? Um, and, and the reason I chose to do an MBA is that one, it would give me more time where I could work in the lab. That discovery I described actually was while I was in business school. So like while all my MBA classmates were out, you know, having fun, I was like, you know, in the lab <laughs> experimenting on my immune cells. Um, but so I, I knew that if I went to did an MBA, it would give me time I wouldn't have had during a residency. Right. Um, so it'd give me time to work on things and I still didn't have an answer. And secondly, um, I found out when I started doing Castleman's research and I started the CDCN that some of the biggest hurdles to progress had nothing to do with science or technology, right? They were just issues of getting people to work together, coming up with a plan, using resources efficiently, things that like we don't, we didn't really learn in med school. And um, so I thought to myself, I was like, okay, maybe I can both have more time to do research and also pick up some skills that can help me with pushing forward the research. And so, yeah, um, with the CDCN, we really took a really different approach approach. Uh, the first week of business school, there was this innovation challenge where um, we were trying to come up with a solution to a massive world problem. And and rather than like each one of us coming up with an idea, we did this whole crowdsourcing campaign where we all threw in like dozens of ideas. And then we had a voting system to come up with the best idea. And eventually it culminated in this like really, really good idea, right? From 700 people, you get like one great idea, which is like way better than if, if all of us just came up with one idea each, right? And I'm sitting there thinking like, why don't we do this in research? 
I mean, the way we do research, as you know, is that all of us come up with one idea, or at least, sorry, a fraction of us in that field will come up with one idea. We throw it in, and then the reviewers have to review among those ideas and pick the best one. And the only people that apply for grants and actually share their ideas are the people who are capable of doing the research. That's right. So all these brilliant doctors and researchers around the world who might have a great idea for Castleman's, they can't, they have no process to share that idea unless they could do the research in their lab. And so we're like, maybe we should just totally change that. So so we did that with the CDCN where, where we, do, we don't do RFPs. Like we don't say like, hey, we've got 100,000, like apply right. for it. We built this really amazing network of doctors, uh, researchers, and patients. And patients too, which is fascinating part of it. And patients where we crowdsource from them. We actually get just about as many ideas from patients as we do from physicians. It's a different kind of question. We ask patients, what questions, if answered, would be meaningful to you? Questions about your disease. Whereas we ask physicians the same question. We also ask them, you know, what research techniques can do that. So like patients aren't proposing single cell RNA sequencing, but they may be proposing, um, you know, I want to have a better diagnostic test or prognostic test, for example. And so um, we get all these ideas and then we have a, a really smart group of people go through the ideas and iterate on them and then figure out, okay, what's the best idea? And then let's throw in some new ideas. Let's get it even better. And then when we pick the best idea, it's not tied to a specific researcher. So we can go on PubMed and reach out to colleagues and say, who is the best person in the world to do this study? And we go to them and we're like, hey, we want you to do the study. We're going to give you all the money you need, all the samples you need, just do the work. And they're like, wait a minute, what? Like, I don't have to apply for a grant. We're like, no, like the community has spoken. We want to do this and you are the best person in the world. And we've, you know, unanimously had great feedback from from these researchers because researchers love to do research. We don't like to write grants, right? Right. And so it's worked really well. It really just, I mean, turning the whole model uh, on its head. And so yeah. what else happened with CDCN? You've figured you learned a lot of stuff about Castleman's disease and you were able to treat other people too. I mean, you have success stories. That's right. Yeah. So we developed the first ever diagnostic criteria. So now patients get diagnosed a lot more quickly. We developed a consensus uh, treatment guidelines. So now everyone can follow the same treatment approach, no matter where you are in the world. We uncovered uh, this uh, mTOR signaling pathway. It's the first therapeutic target dis described or discovered in 25 years. Bef you know, Previously, it was IL-6. Now we've got mTOR. And then a couple of years after, we discovered another target, JAK-1 and JAK-2. Um, so we've got a couple new targets and then also CXL-13 last year. So discovering more and more therapeutic targets, um, improving um, both diagnosis and treatment, and uh, and really importantly, moving those laboratory discoveries like mTOR and JAK uh, into patient care. And so what's cool about mTOR and also JAK is that there are these inhibitors that were developed for other things and they're at your pharmacy. And so we've been treating patients off-label with these drugs. And I mean, Patrick, I can't even put into words what what it's been like to see these, these patients. Off, oftentimes, it's just so happened that um, they're often quite young and like to see a kid who's struggling with first and second line therapy and chemo and like knowing that the next step would be like, this is it, comfort care. And knowing that like one of these well, drugs that came out of our too. lab, say that again? You've lived it. You lived exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's just been amazing. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's you know, we're still working hard. Um, that IL-6 blocker ended up getting FDA approval, works for one third of patients and then the mTOR inhibitor works for another about 25% of patients. So, you know, we're up to about 60% of patients where we have a good therapy. The other 40% are getting blasted with chemo still. And some of them are getting jack inhibition. But we, we need to, you know, break through for that last 40%. So, so that drives us. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the other big takeaway from this is, wait a minute. So you're saying there's drugs at the pharmacy that could be useful for another disease than what it was made for? Like this jack inhibitor and the mTOR inhibitor, like – 
wait a minute. Um, so that's really, really led us to, to lean really heavily into the field. You know, it's called drug repurposing, um, which which I don't love that term because um, that sort of assumes that like the first purpose was the right purpose when the reality is, is like, who knows if you got it right the first time and there could be some other amazing use for it. And so we're, you know, so through the CDCN, we really pioneered this concept of repurposing for rare diseases. And that inspired us to take on COVID and to synthesize data on treatments being used for COVID. And then more recently uh, through the new nonprofit, Every Cure. Yeah. So tell me more about Every Cure. This got started with a bang at the Clinton Global Initiative uh, right. through, through your good friend, your help with your good friend, Bill Clinton and uh, other uh, amazing people along the way. So what exactly then is Evercure doing? What's that all about? So I'll, I'll really quickly share um, a story from, because uh, you mentioned President Clinton, and I'll give, give a quick backstory for the listeners. So um, I was in this room at my home office on um, uh, March 31st of two years ago. And um, uh, I get this text message and it's like, hey, uh, President Clinton read your book, Chasing My Cure, and um, he loved it and he wants to talk to you. And it, so it's the day before April Fool's Day. And um, I get this like text message, you know, like, you know, call me back. And so I just thought it was just like total BS. I thought it was like you or Grant or, you know, someone else from, from our med school class, like sending me this text. <laughs> and so I don't respond to it. I'm just like, you know, <laughs> President Clinton didn't read Chase Mike here. I mean, uh, I, yeah. So anyway, and if he did, like, he's not texting me to talk to me. But anyway, so so the guy calls me and he's like, no, really, I'm his chief of staff. He wants to talk to you. So he's like, He's like, are you free this afternoon? I'm like, of course I'm free. Yeah, no, I'm, of course. Like, I'm going to cancel all the meetings. That are, yes, absolutely. I'd be happy to talk to President Clinton. So anyway, he calls me and, um, you know, he's got this like deep, you know, Arkansas accent. I'm still like not even sure if it's him or if it's like some impersonator, <laughs> um, but it turns out to be him. And uh, we talked for like an hour and it was uh, really incredible. I mean, the, the biggest thing that he took away from um, from everything, from the whole book, I mean, uh, was really this idea that drugs could be used in more ways than they're being used for. And he's like, wait a minute, I spent billions of dollars on the Human Genome Project and all this work has been invested. For, I got NIH dollars up. And you're telling me that some of the drugs that have come from all that work could actually be used in more ways than they're currently being used, but like no one's working on that. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And so he, he basically said, he's, you know, if you ever, you know, want to, want to scale what you've been doing and you want to take this to the next level, let me know. Cause I want to give you the platform to do that. So, you know, that led to, to me and Grant, another classmate of ours from, from Penn med school, um, connecting and saying, let's do this. And so we, we started a nonprofit called every cure, um, which is on a, on a mission to unlock the full potential of each and every drug to cure each and every disease possible. So it's not that we believe every disease can be treated by an existing drug, but it's that we believe that every drug that can be repurposed should be repurposed. And we're the ones who are on the, on the, on the trail to do that. So and when it comes to R and D and economics of drug development, yeah, let's you know look behind the scenes a little bit because as those drugs are developed, like you're talking about different these pathways that multiple disease are, are involved in these individual yes. pathways, and and so these I can just imagine some Excel spreadsheet somewhere in some big you know pharmaceutical company's lab where it's you know we studied you know drug X Y Z, and here are twenty different diseases that it could potentially yes. go for, and then you pick the one that's most promising or the most maybe even the most profitable. Yep. So how how is every cure? How can you get that information? And then from there, how do you do the trials to try to repurpose? I guess so. Yeah, we got to find it. You tell me a better term for it. Repurpose these drugs and and try to get them out there for other other indications. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And so um, 
yes, we know, and we've, we've engaged with a bunch of pharmaceutical companies in, in an effort like this, I, I believe needs to be highly collaborative and we need to work with pharma, with, in, or, you know, with academia, with, with everyone. And so we're working with pharma and what we're learning is that you're right, between 20 and 50 different diseases are considered for every drug that's developed. Only five to 10 are studied in clinical trials and only one to three get approved or, or, you know, the drug is only approved for one to three diseases. So there's this huge funnel of like dozens of diseases for every drug that are promising, but never pursued. And, and I get that because companies have to go after, you know, the, the markets that make the most sense. Um, and I understand that they can't go after everything. Um but that's exciting to me because that means there's this information and intel within these companies around other things that look really promising. So we're coming at it from two angles. One is leveraging a knowledge graph just down the road from you at UNC is a group called Renci, and they've really pioneered the use of knowledge graphs in biomedical science. We're basically we're pulling together all of the knowledge from the world. And then what we're innovating on is to establish a score for every drug and every disease combination. So 3,000 approved drugs, there's 12,000 human diseases. Those 3,000 drugs are only approved for about 3,000 diseases. So there's 9,000 diseases with no FDA approved therapy. We're generating a score for every drug disease combo. So all 36 million possibilities of drug versus disease. And many of those aren't going to make sense and they're going to be really low scoring. But many of them are going to look really promising, like an mTOR, serolimus, uh, Castleman's link. And so we're, we're getting at it from this really strong data science angle with our friends at UNC. And in parallel, we're also having conversations with pharmaceutical executives to understand how can we access those spreadsheets that you just mentioned, Patrick, that literally are within every single company for every drug. They're not always totally organized. They might be spread between a number of spreadsheets, a number of PowerPoints. But is there a process we can create and can we pioneer? And I hope someone listening to this podcast um, is in a position to do this. But can we pioneer a path to be able to share that information once your drug becomes generic? Because we recognize that up until the moment it's generic, that you're not going to want to share that information because, you know, the drug is still profitable and there's reason to keep that intel inside. But the moment your drug is generic, can we create a process so that you can share that information with us? And then if we find that to be really promising, we can go out and raise the money as a nonprofit and actually do the trial. So, so humanity benefits, even if it wasn't the right decision for that company. Seems like the moral thing to do. It does. <laughs> Easier said than done, for sure. Dave, again, congratulations on all that. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on and, and have you share your story and in our Show notes, we're going to have links to all the different organizations we talked about. We're going to have links to your book, which I just highly encourage everyone to read if you need a good inspirational read. And I do want to mention, because uh, we got away from it, you started yet another organization before all of this. And yeah. I'm going to include some information in our show notes about that. And I, I want to, before we wrap this up, touch on AMF. What, what was that? So what, AMF is, was, what, what is AMF? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's an organization that I started in memory of my mom. My mom... Uh, passed away when I was a sophomore in college from brain cancer. And uh, her initials uh, were, were AMF. Her name was Amory Fagenbaum. And I, I promised her that I would create something in her memory. I didn't know what it was going to be, but that was the last thing I promised her. Mom, I'm going to make something in your memory for other kids like me that were dealing with the illness, illness, illness or death of a loved one. And um, uh, it's been so amazing 
to see how many college students have been able to support one another and get through what's a really tough time to lose someone. And uh, yeah, I love that you changed your comment to current tense because it, or present tense, because it actually is still going on. Um, yeah, you know, we, we developed it and created it back in um, 2006 and uh, it continues to grow and blossom. I'm actually no longer involved in AMF and I love to look from afar and see that it's still reaching a lot of people. Your mom would be so amazingly proud of you. Uh, Dave, again, thanks for for joining us and uh, to everyone listening, dominate the day. If you can dominate, you know, a quarter as well as Dave had, we're all in a, we'll be in a good world. So everyone take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.